0: Again, if you would, uh, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll be looking today at verses 11 through 22. What was it, Ephesians Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise. By the Spirit, thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to us. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word, and we pray, God, now for the preaching of your word. We pray that you would be with this, your servant, that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart may be your words, may be what you want to speak to us. We pray also for those who hear, we would have ears to hear, that we would hear the gospel, that we would be nourished in Christ, built up in Him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In our modern times, we recognize nations with a few different measures. First of all, all modern nation-states have borders which mark out their territory. Nations also have symbols, such as flags, which point to their national identity and their unity. Typically, during the Olympic Games, we would see flags of many different nations being displayed in the crowds, although I guess this year's Olympics is going to be a bit different, as they won't really have crowds. But normally, that's what you would see. Nations also have citizenship. Citizenship. You, are, you either belong to the nation or you are an outsider to that nation. If you're a citizen of that nation, you may enjoy certain rights and privileges, like, say, voting, for example. And those who are not citizens do not or should not enjoy the privileges of those who are. You might be welcome to visit, say, Australia, but you don't enjoy the right of voting in Australia. You don't enjoy the privileges of those who are citizens of that nation. And so citizenship matters in the world of nations, and it matters in the spiritual realm as well. The Christian is a member or citizen of a spiritual kingdom. Those who formerly were aliens and strangers of the kingdom, they had been outside... They have been brought now in through faith in Jesus Christ. They've been brought near and are included in God's covenant promises. This spiritual kingdom is not concerned with things like race or social standing, as the world tends to see things. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of people from many different tribes and nations and tongues and people. These various peoples have been brought together through Jesus Christ into one nation, into one spiritual kingdom. Previous to knowing Christ, Paul points out that the Ephesians were strangers. They were outsiders. They were outside of God's covenant promises. These, they were alien to God's kingdom. But that status for them had changed. They have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And as a result, they have been made into one people. God's people. As fellow citizens together, they are united together as one people, both Jew and Gentile. Without any respect to race or national background. And so what we're talking about today is the universal church, the spiritual kingdom which the believer inherits, the unity which exists in the body of Christ, not only in small expressions of the body like we have here at Covenant Reformed Church, but that which exists around the world, the unity which you have with fellow believers in all national nations. Now, a few weeks ago, when we looked at the first 10 verses verses of chapter 2, we saw that as believers in Jesus Christ, we've been saved by grace through faith in Him. God, who is rich in mercy and filled with great love, has made us alive together in Christ. The work of salvation is not our work. It is the work of God. Christ Jesus is our Lord. It is He who rescued us, undeserving and wretched sinners as we are. Paul has now set before the Ephesian church a contrast of their spiritual condition before salvation and after salvation. Previously, they were spiritually dead. this is what they were by nature. But now they have been regenerated by Christ and have been exalted with Him, having been seated with Him in the heavenly places, as He talks about in chapter 1. Formerly they walked in the ways of the world, but now they have been saved by grace through faith, they've been transformed. And the change that occurred to the Ephesians was not brought about by any good works on their part, but it was in fact a gift from God. They are, Paul reminds them, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We read that in verse 10. And so now in verse 11, they are again called to remember. He says, therefore, remember. God is always calling us to remember these sort of things. Since God has done such great things for you, it is good, it is appropriate for you to remember, to know what it is that God has done, to be cognizant of your former condition, to be mindful of what it is you have been saved out of. Let God's marvelous grace of saving sinners such as you and I motivate humility and gratitude. The Ephesians had been uncircumcised heathens, strangers to God's law. They did not possess within their flesh the covenant sign of the Jews, namely circumcision. The seal of God's covenant dealings with the nation of Israel. The Ephesians were Gentiles; they were not part of the Israelite nation, nor did they have the sign of that nation. They did not have the symbol of belonging to Israel. But as important as the sign is, it was not. It is not the determining factor of being part of God's kingdom. For the sign itself merely points to a greater spiritual reality. That is, circumcision of the heart, internal cleansing, regeneration, or what we might call a changed heart. And we understand this. We understand that the sign isn't what determines the, the reality. There are people who receive, for instance, the sign of baptism. And yet they show themselves later to be Unbelievers. There is the sign, and then there is the thing which is signified. Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way in chapter 27. There is in every sacrament a special relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. The Confession goes on to point out that any grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. It's It's not that baptism is saving people. It's not that circumcision is what made them truly a member of the nation. But it's because of the Holy Spirit. You see, even under the old covenant, there were those who were Jews outwardly having the sign of circumcision, but who were still who still did not have a changed heart. Their heart hadn't been circumcised. What Paul is pointing out to the Ephesians is that they lacked both the external and the internal. They were not part of God's people inwardly. They didn't have changed hearts prior to knowing Christ. And they weren't one outwardly. They were part of the other nations. They were Gentiles. They were outsiders. They were, look at verse 12, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This this was their spiritual state prior to knowing Christ. They were heathens. They didn't have knowledge or even an expectation of salvation from a Messiah. This was their state before conversion. This is a state of all before they know Christ. They were hopeless aliens, standing apart. They were outside of God's covenant. They were members not of the kingdom of God, but were subjects of the city of destruction. Israel, as a nation, was a people of great hope. They were looking forward to that day when the Messiah would come. But the Gentiles, the other nations, they didn't share that hope. They didn't have expectation. This is the spiritual state of all those outside of Christ. All those who are not resting and trusting and resting in Christ Jesus for their salvation are outside of the kingdom. They are without hope. They do not know God. This is the place that the Ephesians had been standing, as it were, outside of the city of the walls of the city of God. They were those outside of that kingdom. They were alien, aliens to that land. They were on the outside looking in. The world may walk among us, they may even attend our worship services, but if they do not know Christ, they too are aliens. They are in a foreign land, as it were, who don't enjoy the blessings, even as they may enjoy some common grace. Now, don't misunderstand the point. It is not that the unbeliever can't have uh, happinesses in their life or, or enjoy uh, certain uh, good things to a degree. What we're talking about is not, a, is not things here and now in this present world. What we're talking about is the eternal and spiritual kingdom, which the believer presently enjoys and which will be seen and touched and enjoyed in the new heavens and new earth. The unbeliever is, is without hope for that kingdom. They are alienated from their Creator because of sin. And sadly, many, if not most, are totally unaware of this fact, and in many cases, they simply do not care. The lost is in some cases ignorant of the fact that they are lost. But there is hope for the lost, is there not? In Christ, those who are far off can be brought near. They're brought near by virtue of their union with Christ. Those who were aliens, those who were outside of the kingdom, can be brought in by faith in Jesus Christ. Under the Old Testament sacrificial system, God was worshipped in the temple. This was the place where he could be met with. Now we worship in spirit and in truth. Previously, the far off nations were literally far off. They didn't have access to God, they didn't have access to Mount Zion. They could not come to worship, nor did they want to. This is what, think about the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You remember her question concerning the proper place of worship. She asked, is it the mountain in Samaria, or is it Mount Zion in Jerusalem? Where's the right place to worship God? Remember Jesus' answer, John 4, verse, starting verse 22. Jesus said, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in Spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Two true worshipers, those who would worship the Father, truly worship the Father in Spirit and in truth, not in some special place. And this shift came about by virtue of Christ shed blood on the cross and union with him through the Spirit. And so those who were previously far off, those who were literally far off, they had no access to Mount Zion, to the place where God was to worship, now are brought near spiritually. They're enabled. Mount Zion has come down. We worship God in spirit and truth. Those who do not have access because they were not members of the nation, do not live in the land, do not have access to Zion, now have access to the Father by faith in the Son. This is why Peter said in Acts chapter 2 and verse 39, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. All people. All nations, all tribes, all languages have access to God by virtue of their union with Christ by faith in Him. God no longer dwells among His people in a temple, in a particular geographic place, but now His Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of all those who believe. The Holy Spirit dwells in you if you are trusting in Christ. And any spiritual distance and alienation now has been bridged. We have been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, and we've been transformed into the people of God. 1 Peter 2 9, you have been made a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And as a result, we can now enter with confidence into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We can come boldly before God's throne of grace by the new and living way that He has opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, Hebrews 10 tells us. So the far-off alien and stranger has been brought near, but you've not only been brought near, you've been made citizens and you've been made beloved children. The far-off are now adopted children, sons, heirs. This was the case for the Ephesian believers, and this is the case for you and for me as well. Paul further strengthens his point by way of illustration and confirmation in verse fourteen. It says, For we for he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. He has made peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Jesus Christ, through his ministry of reconciliation, bridging that gap, has brought about peace. He has brought about reconciliation between you and a holy God, between you as a sinner and a holy God who is righteous and good. This is the dividing wall of hostility. And he did this by rendering the law inoperative. Now, if you're using the English Standard Version, it translates it, abolishing the law. Now, admittedly, the Greek is difficult to translate here, but it's not that Christ did away with the law, which is what abolishing would seem to indicate. It would be more accurate to say that the law has been defanged. That is to say that the demands of the law have been fully satisfied by the one who came to fulfill it for you, namely, Jesus. He has delivered us from all the obligations of the law as the condition of their justification before God. This is how you're justified because Jesus fulfilled it for you. He did for you what you could not do. And in this sense, the curses of the law have been made obsolete. So it's not that the law was done away with in the sense of abolish, as if, you know, abolish like it, like it never was or is or totally unnecessary. It was fulfilled and no longer has teeth. Christ took upon himself the full penalty on our behalf at the cross and the curse has been set aside because he paid it for you. The wall, then, which divides a holy God and wretched sinners has been breached. The teeth have been taken out of the law and we have been reconciled in two ways. We've been reconciled to God and we've been reconciled to one another. As he has created in himself one new man in place of the two. So, making peace. You see, the relationship of the Jew and the Gentile has been reconciled. The two people have been made into one people. Christ is our peace because he has removed the enmity. He has removed the dividing wall. He has removed the hostility which exists between these people. These things which separated men from one another. The dividing wall Paul speaks of is illustrated by the barricade of the temple court, between the court of the Gentiles and the temple itself. In fact, Paul may have this in mind. There was an inscription posted at the gates in the court of the Gentiles which read this, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. If you were a Gentile and you crossed the barricade at the temple, you were going to die. Because you were entering a holy place you had no business in. Well, that barricade's been taken down in Christ. That which separated God from man, which separated Jew from Gentile, which was seen in the law, has now been torn down. In Christ, and by His blood, you and I can imbr- approach the Holy of Holies. We can do so with boldness. In fact, I often will say that on the Lord's Day, let us go boldly before God's throne of grace. We can go boldly before our God, and He welcomes us because you are His children. He delights in you. The far off have been made near. We can enter boldly, and we can relate to one another because of our union with Christ because we're in Christ. And so both the Jew and the Gentile, the cross of Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God and made us one people, one body. And so Christ, having now brought about peace, then also announces that peace. Jesus preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. This, Charles Hodge says, is the burden of the gospel, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. This, beloved, is the ministry of reconciliation which Christ has purchased in His blood and that we proclaim. That sinners can be reconciled to a holy God. This is what we preach. Christ crucified. Crucified. And so now being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We are no longer an enmity with God. The rebels have been put down and have been made sons. We are no longer at war with Him. Christ came preaching peace. But what is this preaching that Paul refers to? Is it Christ's personal ministry on earth? When He came in the flesh... Jesus preached so certainly this may at least be partly in view but the flow here seems to indicate that his preaching of peace was after the resurrection after he had fulfilled what he had come to do he had preached peace and he he did that mainly he accomplished that mainly through his apostles Christ, having made peace at the cross by his blood, was raised on the third day from the grave and he preached peace. He preached the peace that he had bought. When we preach Christ crucified, we're preaching the peace which can be made, had through him. And the preaching of that peace began with his disciples but then it was carried by them to all of Jerusalem and among the Jews and then throughout Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth and we're still carrying that message of peace are we not is not is peace not what we proclaim that peace with God being brought and proclaimed to every nation on the earth well, but this is the goodness of the good news of the Gospel. You and I no longer are strangers and aliens. We are no longer outsiders. We are no longer enemies of God. But we have peace with Him. We've been reconciled through Christ. This one who has brought us peace, that is Christ, has also provided us access to the Father. You see, it's not simply that Christ has brokered a peace deal, but he has transported us into the presence of the great King and Creator and made us to be sons. In Christ, believers have become one family and are indwelt with one spirit. Because we all are in the same family, the Father doesn't make distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. All who believe, every person who believes is a child, an heir. This is why Paul can say in verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You once were, but now you no longer are, by virtue of faith in Christ. No longer... You are no longer as you were before. No longer are you a foreigner. No longer are you an outsider. If you are in Christ, you are reconciled. So in in this now spiritual kingdom, the Gentiles also enjoy full access to the Father, just as the Jews had. They enjoy all the rights and privileges of citizenship in this kingdom. There is among the people of God perfect equity. In Christ, you and I are perfectly and fully brothers and sisters in the household of God. We're family. Some of you think, boy, I'm not sure I really want to be related to you. We're family. Now this is this is important. I mean, all of this is important, but I, this is an important point. Because in our day... There's been a lot of hand-wringing and much digital ink spilled over various relationships. You know, various races, male and female. What must be done to realize equality? There's been a lot of talk of this in our nation. The basis for our unity is not on gender identity or even destroying that as a category, nor is it based in skin tones or racial backgrounds, or our self-identity. It's found in our, our union with Christ. You want equality? You want equity among people? It's found in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the answer. This is what the world blindly doesn't seem to understand. You see, you and I hold the most critical of the offices of the church, that is, the general office of the believer. Your status is that of a child of the king, a son, an heir. Your equality and unity is rooted in your faith and union with that king, namely Jesus Christ. And so as Christians, you and I are family. We are a household which is established upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And Jesus himself, verse 20 says, is the cornerstone of that spiritual house. Of course, what Paul is describing there is the fact that the teaching ministry of the apostles and prophets is the foundation which has been laid and upon which we, the church, are built. We are built together on this foundation. And all of their work was based off of the chief stone, the corner stone, the most critical one, Jesus. Now, this is is an apt illustration of the church, is it not? Think about this. If you're going to build a building, the first thing you need to do is to lay a foundation. Buildings don't go up very well if you start with just building walls and hope to get a foundation in there somewhere later. I won't say I know this by experience. When you lay a foundation... You need to measure it out. You need to lay out a marker from which the whole foundation and building will be plumbed together. And I do know this from experience. If you don't get the foundation right, your building will not turn out very well. I once built a garage my grandfather helped me with. And as I laid the foundation, I did not measure very well. My grandfather had to fix my mistakes, thankfully. Otherwise, that building would not have turned out. Well, this is really what Paul is getting at. This is the the illustration. The very foundation of the church, of this spiritual house, if you will, comes about from the teaching of the apostles and the prophets of the church, which in turn are centered on, are leveled off of the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. This is another way of saying all all the teaching of the prophets and apostles is the teaching of Jesus Christ. They didn't go out and start teaching other things. They taught what Jesus taught. Because he's the chief cornerstone. Paul is drawing here from an Old Testament allusion found in Isaiah chapter 28. and verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. See, the foundation of the church is the teaching of the apostles and prophets of the new covenant, and Christ is the cornerstone from which they are measured and plumbed. Therefore, the walls of this building, which include both Jews and Gentiles, can be joined together with common dependence on their common Redeemer. Verse 21, "...in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple." In the Lord, this house which is being built really is the temple. We said already that the Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of believers. We're being built together as a temple, the, the dwelling place of our Lord. And so, this whole spiritual building, this, this holy temple, as it were, is being joined together, it's being fitted together, and growing together in the Lord. All the parts of this building are being, as one commentator put it, fitted, framed, fittingly framed together. The church is the masterpiece of the Lord. He is the one cutting the stones. He is the one laying them into place, fitting them together. And therefore our union with Christ... Is also union with one another. If we are all fit into one building which has a foundation of the apostles and prophets and has a chief cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. The several parts, one with another, as it were, constitute a united whole. The union which we enjoy then is like a building well built and fitting tightly together the church of Jesus Christ. But like a building which we can touch and feel and see, this building, the church, is not necessarily seen, for what we're talking about here is a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual dwelling, which is a dwelling place of the invisible God. Verse 22, In Him you also are being built together into the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Paul reminds the Ephesians that they are being built together with other believers in other small expressions, yet forming the whole of the church. What we're talking about here is the universal church. And really, we could say what we might also call, uh, we, we saw this in the larger catechism, the invisible church. These are, these are true believers being fitted Together. This is how we understand the church. This gathering of believers here is but one small expression of that universal church, which is the place which God dwells. Just as God had once taken up residence in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, and then later in in Jerusalem at the temple, and so now by His Spirit He makes fellowship with believers, Jew and Gentile alike, His chosen dwelling place, this spiritual temple. So those, all those who are in Christ by faith therefore have an equal share in this privilege. You are fellow citizens. You and I believers in Jesus Christ have an equal interest in this privilege. We are inheritors inheritors of the kingdom we, too, are being built up together to form one building in unity as a dwelling place for God. We are spiritual stones, as it were, being shaped in God's hands, building the spiritual house of which God is pleased to dwell in. I think what Paul is laboring to explain to his readers is that on account of their having been transformed and renewed in Christ, we have become children of God in union with Christ and in union with one another. The basis of our unity is in Christ. That's where we find unity. And that spiritual union. Therefore, as we're built together, this is the place which God dwells. Which is another way to say this. God dwells with his people. God is... We, I mean, we talk about this when we talk about worship. When we worship the Lord, God is present with us. There's a sense in which God is transporting us into the heavenly places. This is where we are, we are seated, even now, before God's throne of grace. And God is pleased to do so, to dwell with us. This is why we can say this with confidence that we... Are gathered in God's presence. God is present with his people. He dwells with us. He is present with us in worship. He is present with us in our fellowship. He has tabernacled with us because we're in Christ. And because we are in union with Christ, we have unity with one another. Because we have become one people, one nation, one kingdom under the headship of the risen King, Jesus Christ. Now think about the whole of Paul's argument here. If you really, if you think about it, take this whole thing together, this is actually it's amazing, isn't it? This is incredible. This is wonderful news. This is one of the the marvelous aspects of the good news of the Gospel which ought to leave us in awe and wonder. God's people have become one people and God, the Holy God, is delighted to dwell with us eternally. Let's sink in. Oh, may, may we never lack awe and wonder when it comes to this. But maybe we have hearts of great gratitude and thanksgiving. As we consider our own nation, we, it's become very clear that our country lacks a cohesive unity. Wouldn't you say that's true? We've become a people greatly divided over many things, some of which I've touched on. But this ought not to be the case in the church. In the church of Jesus Christ, we have unity with one another because of our union with Christ. Because we are in Him, because we are in Christ, we also are united together. You see, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There is no one who is considered to be greater or lesser in the kingdom. We, we are one in Christ. When we understand this, we understand in greater measure what the world confuses. This is all accomplished because of the Redeemer who made peace for us and preached that peace. And So I ask, are you resting in the fact that you are at peace with God? That your sins have been atoned for? Are you seeking unity and peace with fellow believers because God has made peace with you in Christ? Beloved, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are rather citizens and children in the household of God, having been fitted together by God, who has taken up His His dwelling with you by the Holy Spirit. And so my appeal to you is to rest in Him, to take joy in Him, even, even when things don't go your way in the world. That when you have disagreements with others, with other fellow believers, that you find unity in Christ and that you find your rest in your Savior. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for these truths. We thank you that you have taken those who are far away and you have brought us near. We thank you that the unity which we enjoy is rooted in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that these things would be ever before our minds, that we would stand in awe of You, of what You have done through Christ, the peace which You have brought about through Him. And we pray that as difficulties may come our way, disagreements may come with fellow believers, we pray that first and foremost, we'd find our union and unity in You. For all, all other things pale in comparison. We thank you, God, for what you've done and what you are doing. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.